This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. When a New Testament believer walks into Saudi Arabia and claims to have found the ancient path of the Israelites, the locals are going to react. Ryan Morrow and Logan Keyswetter share fascinating stories of the Muslim media's outrage to their discoveries at the site of the real Mount Sinai. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Yes, it is true. You can go and see the real Mount Sinai with a real tour guide. Saudi Arabia has opened up her tourism for the first time in history, and you can be there. Ryan Morrow and Logan Keysweater join us tonight to explain why so many Saudis are loving this idea, why some don't, and how the ones who don't may actually be helping to preserve the site for future generations. A very interesting scenario indeed, and that's up in just a few minutes. Right now, it's time to break out the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar right here. It's the fourth and final Shabbat of the fourth month, as you can see on your screen. And you can see this calendar page for free online at arudawakening.tv slash calendar page. Let's talk more with David Robinson and Michael Rood. Welcome. It's good to be here, well, Scott. thanks, Scott. <laughs> you know, Michael, uh, you just keep going day after day after day. I'm glad to see you up here again. Uh, we're just so pleased to have you up here. And uh, that's just it. You know, we, we don't stop this ministry for summer. And uh, David, we've had sales that you and I have arranged for folks right, uh, all through right. July. And I uh, hope folks have, have enjoyed that. But uh, it doesn't stop now. We need to keep uh, supporting through August. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people, you know, are going on vacation and spending that quality time with your families. Uh, but don't forget about us because the summertime is a really tough time of year. Uh, so we can uh, continue to uh, receive from you guys. That would be that would be wonderful. We really do appreciate it. Yep, and, and every ministry seems to go through this, right? Every, any, every year, ministry and nonprofits mm -hmm. as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because you know we have different things we want we want to do with with our, our funds and things mm -hmm. like that. But you know, uh, we need to support those things so that those things that we came right. to enjoy up until summer or there after summer. Exactly. And too, at the end of the year, you know, given's important to, to decide and make decisions for the coming year productions. Yes. But also yeah. in the middle of the year, we have to step back and go, okay, where are we at with our plans and where do we go from here mm -hmm. uh, with the funding we have? So it's, it's still right. very important that we, uh, you guys stick with us through the summer months. And one of those things is, Michael, something you'd worked very hard on, and that is the, the Chronological Gospel Season 3. Uh, you have yeah. recorded all of that uh, already, so it's already there, ready to go, and we're just adding animation to it. We're, we're hiring some folks to help with it so that we can get it out quicker, because mm -hmm. this animation, I mean, if you ever know, uh, you know, if... if uh, an animated film comes out. That's a lot of work. You know, mm -hmm. that's what they have to hire a lot of folks to make that happen, and yeah. it takes a long time. Yeah. And so, for us to do that on a you know on a, on a ministry level, uh, but we're we're doing something very huge. And, you know, you could put this thing on HBO when it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, we need to keep going on this in order to get the mm -hmm. the episodes out when we want to get them out. So, uh, that's why we need funding. Is yeah. because those people come here. You know, we can't expect the workers do as wages. Mm -hmm. We ask someone come, to come in here and work. Uh, we have have to pay them. We have right. to pay them a fair wage. That's only fair. That's what Jehovah wants us to do: is pay people fairly. Exactly. Uh, you're not, you know. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible where you don't hold a cloak back if someone owes you mm -hmm. something. This kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's all about fairness, especially to believers and like-minded individuals. And so uh, we need to pay these folks, and to pay them take costs money. It does, and that it money really comes does. from donations. That's just the reality of it. That's just the way this works. Right. So if you enjoy what you're seeing on Shabbat Night Live, if you're enjoying your, what you're seeing from a rude awakening in general, uh, we need your support. <laughs> and honestly, that just takes money. Yep. It just does. Uh, so thank you in advance for that. And of course, uh, you know, Yehovah always always rewards us in the end for these things anyhow. So it's, it's no skin off our nose. But anyway, uh, so we have a couple more things to talk about here, one of which being the, the love gift. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of donations, if, if you'd like to get something in return for your donation, no problem. We mm -hmm. have something for that. We, have, we call it the love gift. Every month for a donation of $50 or more, uh, we will give you something. 
uh, either a teaching from Michael or a teaching from one of our guests. And this month, it's a guest. Uh, it's a teaching from our guest, Joe Kovacs. And he's talking about uh, revisiting John 3.16. This is not changing John 3.16. It's just understanding it a little deeper by just a slight mistranslation. Again, it doesn't change the meaning of the verse, but it just brings out more uh, of the truth. And, and that is a great teaching. Uh, this is a gift, again, for $50 or more. And if we have a gift of $100 or more, David, there's a, a couple other things, right? Yes, we have for $100 or more. You not only get the teaching, but you also get this um, sterling silver uh, necklace. It has the Shema Hebrew text, Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, on it. And Yeshua said that is the greatest commandment. And uh, for a gift of $300 or more, you not only get the teaching, you get the Shema necklace, and you also get a tablecloth and a hollow bread cover, which um, I just opened this because it has the same pattern on that one. But as you can see, it has the seven branch menorah and the Kiddush cup on it. And um, also these come with a tag on it that tells you how to wash oh, it. Oh yes, the tag. Make sure you do not pull this tag off because this is like a silk type material and it will rip the material. So just make sure you cut it off once you know how to wash it. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and thank you so much for, for uh, you know, uh, donating, and, and it's just Michael's way of saying thank you uh, by giving you these gifts, and we do really appreciate it. Now, when people go in on your tours, Michael, you would like to thank people a little differently by taking them to places <laughs> that maybe not necessarily they would go on a regular tour. Do you have yeah. any stories of, of places you went that not everybody would go to on a tour? Well, one place I know where the where the priest where where he slept, and I would slip him a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he would let me in to the dungeon where Yeshua was kept. Really? Wow. Yeah. And so I took everyone down in the dungeon. Wow, okay. And he wouldn't get there. Uh, the tour guide said, nobody gets in there. And they said, who does? They said, well, that's different. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I lived in the old city for a number of years, and I, I know a lot of people there. Ah, it's all about connections. It is. All yeah. about connections. All right. Well, American okay. Ben Franklin's. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Michael. So, so Ryan and, and Logan are offering this thing in, in Mount Sinai, which is great and it's wonderful. And there, there's information on the bottom of the screen if you want to go there. Uh, that, I think that's a beautiful opportunity. I think it's, it's a wonderful thing. But, you know, we got to get you back on a tour. You got to lead people back to that, go to that dungeon. Because I have, I never got to go on a tour while I you were still either. doing the I tour. Would love so to. we need and to go on a tour. And we have people call all the time asking, you know, oh, it'll be soon. Just That's just right. Be patient. All right. So we need to just be patient and, and keep praying for this guy. He's doing mm -hmm. wonderful up here. Thank you for being up here. Yes, yeah, great to have you. We need you to pray back. that you get back on the tours because I want to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a little slower now, but I, I haven't forgotten anything. Mm -hmm. And so we, I would love to take people back. Yes, That's that wonderful. Now, how long was the tour when you went? Uh, 14 days. Okay, we'll make it 20. If you go a little slower, we'll just extend the tour. Yeah. You know, that's all we got to do. Oh, that's a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Michael, David, thank you for being here. Hey, Great to be here's here. what we're going to see tonight. Take a look. In the biggest irony, it's actually the Islamic Puritanism, the radical Islam of Saudi Arabia that ended up preserving Mount Sinai wow. and all of this archaeological evidence that you're only seeing now. All right, so there you go. Now, when a New Testament believer walks into Saudi Arabia, claims to have found the ancient path of the Israelites, the locals are going to go nuts, right? So Ryan Morrow and Logan Kieswetter share fascinating stories tonight. But first, get some bread and wine out because it's time for the Kiddush with Michael. We'll be right back. John 3.16 is arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, but are we misinterpreting it? Joe Kovacs presents a thought-provoking teaching that re-examines what the verse really means, how we should understand it, and why a proper interpretation of it is vital to understanding Yehovah's view of the world and the sacrifice of His Son. He can't be telling us don't love the world and the things of the world, and also saying that, well, God loves the world so much. They, they're just completely contradictory. And the key to understanding this verse is the very simple short word, so. Revisiting John 3.16 with Joe Kovacs will challenge your assumptions about the true message of Yehovah's Word. And it's our gift to you for supporting A Rude Awakening International. 
Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you Revisiting John 316 with Joe Kovacs on DVD or Blu-ray. Or donate $100 and we'll send you Revisiting John 316 plus a beautiful silver-plated pendant necklace featuring the Shema in Hebrew letters. Or donate $300 and we'll send you the teaching, the silver-plated Shema necklace, plus this dazzling Shabbat tablecloth and matching holobread cover inlaid with artwork from the menorah, the Kiddush cup, and the words Shabbat Shalom in Hebrew. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Root to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. These special gift collections are available only in July and supplies are limited. So make your donation today and receive these exclusive thank you gifts from Michael Rood. Call 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610. Or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. The Chronological Gospels Bible is changing lives all over the world, putting everything the Messiah did in exact chronological order and explaining the behind-the-scenes truth of what the Messiah did, when He did it, and why. The timing of it all means everything. And now, the Chronological Gospels can be easier on your eyes. The larger print edition features 40% larger type, and every page appears exactly the same as the original, so you can follow along with others who have the regular size version. The Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition also has wider margins to write notes, and the premium quality paper means you can highlight without soaking through. Plus, the Larger Print Edition lies flat, so you can teach without having to hold the book open. The Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition is a big and beautiful coffee table book, measuring a full 12 inches tall and 9 inches wide. Study the Bible with clarity and ease. I love the size of this book. This is nine by 12. The paper is, is perfect because it doesn't bleed through when I write on it. I can mark it up and I always make notes in all my Bibles. Everything is the same place as it is on the smaller version and I can just stand back and I can teach from it and it's just, it's the perfect size. I pray thee, of whom speaks this prophet? Order the Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition by phone or online. You'll get 40% larger type than the original. Call 800-788-7887. That's 800-788-7887. Or get the Chronological Gospels Bible Larger Print Edition online at arudeawakening.tv slash large. On the morning that the Passover lambs were selected, there were two loaves that were put on the wall of the temple. When the first one was removed, after that, no more leavened bread was eaten. When the second loaf was removed, then all of the leavened bread in the land of Israel was then burned because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was going to commence at sunset that evening. The night before, Yeshua took Artos, he took leaven bread and he blessed the Most High in the presence of his disciples and he interpreted the Kadosh Mikra, the holy rehearsal that Melchizedek put in place with Abraham. Yeshua said the prayer of the Melech Zadik, Baruch Atah Yehovah Eloheinu Melech HaAlam, Hamotzi Lechemim Haaretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he said, this represents my body, which is now broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Then Yeshua took the cup and he said, Baruch Atah, Yehovah, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, the King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he said, you take my cup, divide it among yourselves. I will not drink a sip of the fruit of the vine till I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So as often as we do this now, we rehearse 
not only his death, but we rehearse that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will take his cup and say, Lahaim to life everlasting. And until then, Shabbat Shalom. So one of the greatest things Michael ever did and, and does and, and hopefully will be doing in the future is tours of Israel. I mean, if you wanted to go to Israel and you really wanted to see the real Israel and see places that not everybody gets to go to, you wanted to go with Michael Rood. Well, Michael, of course, is recovering from a stroke and we pray that he is back soon doing, the, doing his best up here on the stage. And also, uh, you know, those tours had to stop because of the COVID Thing that happened around the world. Perhaps you heard of it. So now, uh, those tours of Israel, well, they're kind of a little bit of a damper on those. So where do you go? If you really want to see the Bible come alive, there is another option. And uh, we're going to talk about that today, among other things. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about more things. So Ryan Morrow and uh, Logan Keysweater, did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live again. Thank you. Last yeah, week, we were talking about all things exciting regarding Saudi Arabia. And what do I mean? But Well, you guys are taking tours over there. MountSinaiTours.com, right? That's it. Okay. Don't need a special, well, you do need a little bit of a visa, but you said it's easy to get, Yeah, right? we help you with that. Okay, very good. And all you need is an American passport, and you can literally, just like you're going to visit Europe, just yeah, go yeah. to Saudi Arabia and mm -hmm. see the real Mount Sinai? Well, it was his first international trip. Yeah. Wow. First, uh, yep, Gosh. absolutely. Okay, so if they, this is really cool. So now, What's also really cool is, is the evidence that is being found on these tours, because of course Israel has been, you know, researched a lot. The archaeology has been going on there for many, many, many years. This is kind of virgin territory. Yeah. In Saudi Arabia, is it not? Yeah, and the Saudis will admit that. That's actually part of their advertisement to people to come to Saudi Arabia because they're finally opening up to international archaeological explorations. Wow. Uh, and they're finding a ton of stuff, uh, and there really hasn't even been a shovel brought to these areas around Mount Sinai um, in, in most of the areas. So you never know what you're going to find. Uh, and so we just mentioned uh, last week uh, about the one Proto-Hebrew inscription that I found next to Logan's foot. Uh, and <laughs> Who That's knows, that could be you guys as well. You just have yeah. no idea what you're going to find. But one of our friends also found uh, another Proto-Hebrew inscription. And Logan, why don't you explain that and where it was? Yeah, okay, so just brief recap of what we talked about last week, right? Okay, so the Israelites, it's believed they invented the alphabet while in Egypt. And you have those inscriptions there. gets referred to as Proto-Sinaitic while it's there. Then you go over into Arabia and you have something that scholars, Dr. Miles Jones and other scholars, secular scholars, scholars actually say is one of the first direct offshoots of the Proto-Sinaitic. It gets called by various names. Some people call it Thamudic. That's what Dr. Jones refers to it as. It's not all the Thamudic inscriptions in Arabia, but it's the very oldest because people, you know, picked up the alphabet and adopted it, you know, just like they did in Israel. But anyway, uh, so these inscriptions that are over in Arabia would therefore also be Proto-Hebrew. So we were talking about some of the, like, the, foot, the, the inscription that was by my foot. Now we're going to talk about the footprint inscriptions, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so we have the sandal petroglyphs, which the Caldwells and others have talked about, sandal petroglyphs with a triple hash mark. And the triple hash mark, Dr. Jones believes, is the Proto-Hebrew kaf. In Egypt, it was written as a triple hash with a bull beneath it, kind of like representing the thumb and the pinky. Well, in Arabia, that bull gets dropped, so it's just the triple hash mark, and they put it by the instep of the foot, by the sandals, and Miles has interpreted that to say the sole of the foot, referring to Deuteronomy 11.24, right? Sure, it makes sense. Yeah, so those are found by, in the area of the split rock, where the Caldwells believe, what the Caldwells believe is Rephidim, the campsite of Rephidim. Well, not only are they found by the split rock, but as Ryan was saying, a friend of ours also found one in the plain in front of Jebel Makla, which is the real Mount Sinai. So you have the two footprints, and then this one has a large triple hash. It's a huge one, two, and the third one is actually inside of one of the sandal petroglyphs. Wow. So the significance of that is whatever group of people was over by the split rock came around and set up shop in front of the plain. Now, for those who have never been there, so what kind of distance are we talking about here? 
It's, I'd be several miles. You're talking, so the Split Rock, there, there's an area that we and some of our friends think we've identified, and I think the Caldwells believe this too, where there's the Split Rock and then there's these wadis, which are the, which are the valleys. So you have the, the Split Rock area and the wadi that kind of goes up and then curves down and around into the plain area. So you're talking like a decent distance, but not like anything like crazy that the Israelites couldn't handle, especially right. given their, their it, journey. It basically, it makes sense as the last encampment before arriving at Mount Sinai, just like the Bible says. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to kind of summarize that, you, and Logan has really educated me on this, uh, the, there are proto-Hebrew inscriptions in the Sinai Peninsula in the area where we believe the Israelites were enslaved. Um, and so by tracing this, what you find is that there was a Hebrew population definitely in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Where's the next spot that they appear? Northwestern Saudi Arabia, hmm. specifically around the Split Rock. And then the same Hebrew population goes to what we believe is Mount Sinai mm -hmm. and encamps in the plain. I mean, we're getting close to having a true smoking gun here. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And another really important point with that is the, uh, the Arabian variety of the inscriptions appear before the inscriptions that are up in Israel. So you have Egypt... Yeah. Arabia, Israel, in terms of how the inscriptions travel and how the alphabet traveled with the Israelites. Now, speaking of that travel, so what initiated all this was Passover, of course, right. in Egypt. So now uh, you guys have a 10-minute video that we're going to show here uh, called The Archaeology of Passover. Is that right? Yeah. So tell right. us what we're going to see here. So, well, actually... If, you, if you're familiar with the first Patterns of Evidence film, The Exodus, we kind of focused in on that and we delved deep into uh, what are referred to as the death pits at the site of Avaris, which is in Goshen, where the Israelites were saying, staying. There's all that, again, if you're looking at the right time period, you find all this archaeology that lines up with uh, the sojourn period and the enslavement period. Well, right before Avaris, the site where the Israelites were staying is abandoned, as well as other Semitic settlements in Egypt, they're abandoned at the same time too. There are uh, these pits that archaeologists have referred to as death pits, where bodies were just thrown in and tossed on top of each other. It's like a big mass grave. Big mass grave. And then all of a sudden, Avaris is abandoned, and the other Semitic settlements in Egypt are abandoned too. And mm. there's, uh, there's an Egyptian text that also refers to plagues. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Interesting. All right, well, let's take a look. This is the archaeology of Passover. Take a look. Happy Passover to everyone who's celebrating the holiday. In this video, we're going to ask a question. Is there evidence that the Passover story actually happened? Or are people just celebrating a myth? Let's take a look. For those of you who don't know, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all believe that God punished ancient Egypt with ten plagues for their enslavement and mistreatment of the Hebrew people, and refusing to let them leave the country with Moses so that they could have freedom once again. The tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn. All of the oldest children in Egypt would die, except for the Israelites as long as they sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood of that lamb on the doors of their homes. The plague would then pass over the Israelite home, sparing the family, hence the name Passover. Now that story sounds like a myth, right? It's fine to admit it, that's what I thought growing up. But let's take a look at the archaeological evidence that has surfaced in relatively recent decades. First, is there evidence of a plague at that time in Egyptian history? The answer is yes. After decades of academics saying the Exodus story must be a myth because they haven't found strong evidence for it, archaeologists around 1991 found what have been described as death pits. And in these death pits were large numbers of Egyptians that were suddenly buried due to some calamity. Bodies just thrown on top of bodies. And it's thought that that disaster was a plague. And that plague, according to some specialists, dates to the time of the Exodus. But there's more. The Bible says the Hebrews were enslaved in a part of Egypt called Goshen. In the 1960s, archaeologists began studying a site in Egypt called Avaris, which corresponds to Goshen. Then, in the 1990s, researchers from the Austrian Archaeological Institute made a big discovery there. This used to be the home of a massive Semitic population, just like the Hebrews. And there is evidence 
that that Semitic population was enslaved and terribly treated later in its history. A second enslaved and abused Semitic population was discovered at Cahun, 120 miles south of Avaris. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. These two enslaved Semitic communities around the time of this plague that struck the Egyptians suddenly vanishes. Where'd they go? The only answer I can think of is that they suddenly picked up and left Egypt. They were able to escape or Egypt let them escape because there's no evidence of a sudden genocide against them where all of them were massacred. So they obviously left. So we have evidence of a massive plague striking the Egyptians during the time some experts believe the exodus happened. We have two enslaved and abused Semitic populations, just like the Hebrews, suddenly vanishing around the time of this plague, likely immediately afterwards. Is that story starting to sound familiar to you? Now, finally, what about testimony? Ideally, you will have testimony that matches from both sides of the conflict, the Semitic side and the Egyptian side. On the Semitic side, we already have the testimony. It's called the Torah or the Old Testament. And that book of Exodus is not written as a fantasy story. It wasn't written as a myth. It does count as a historical record. It does count as a testimony of what allegedly happened. The debate is whether it's accurate or how accurate, but it is a historical record. So that side is taken care of. On the Egyptian side, there are two written records testifying to some of the events of Passover. The Ipuor Papyrus is an Egyptian account, apparently an eyewitness account, of a disaster, which some experts date to the time of the Exodus, the time of the Semitic account. And the Egyptian eyewitness account in the Ipuor Papyrus is stunningly similar to what you would read in the Semitic account in the book of Exodus. And specifically when it comes to Passover, there's this line, but you really got to read the whole thing. But pay attention to this part. Behold, plague sweeps the land. Blood is everywhere with no shortage of the dead. Children are dashed against the walls. The funeral shroud calls out to you before you come near. Woe is me for the grief of this time. He who buries his brother in the ground is everywhere. Wailing is throughout the land mingled with lamentations. Now, we've also seen other translations that are a little bit different. And one of them says, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. That would line up even more closely with what the book of Exodus says about the oldest son of the Pharaoh dying in this specific plague. And there's a second Egyptian testimony, again said to have been written at the time of the Exodus and around the time of the Ipuor Papyrus. So it's all coming together, time-wise. At Cahun, where the enslaved Semitic population was basically caged in and guarded, Egyptian writing has been found that references a plague that struck the country, and the author calls it an evil hour. So let's summarize. First, the Bible says God sent plagues against Egypt, including a final tenth plague that kills the firstborn. At the time that the book of Exodus says this happened, there are death pits showing mass burials of Egyptians due to a plague. Second, the Bible says the Hebrews, an enslaved and abused Semitic population, are allowed to leave Egypt right after the 10th plague. In recent decades, archaeologists found two enslaved and abused Semitic communities, and these communities left apparently right after a devastating plague. Third, we have two Egyptian testimonies apparently eyewitness testimonies, of a devastating plague. Again, the testimony's descriptions match the Semitic testimony found in the book of Exodus. And some experts believe the timing of the testimonies when they were written matches well. So they're all describing the same events from different points of view. So I ask you, the viewer, is the Passover holiday based on real events? Are those who honor Passover celebrating history? Or are they celebrating a myth, a feel-good story? Now, if you're looking for even more evidence that the Exodus story is credible, look at our film that has gotten 
over 7 million views in 42 languages. It's gone viral. I stutter when I read that because I still can't believe it. Over 7 million views in 42 languages. It's called Finding the Mountain of Moses, the Real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. And that covers the second part of the Exodus story. If you're interested in the first half, like the events that we've been talking about, the best documentary out there is Patterns of Evidence by our friend Tim Mahoney. So if you pair Patterns of Evidence for the first part of the Exodus story with our Finding the Mountain of Moses documentary for the next part of the Exodus account, you're gonna be amazed at how strong the evidence is. I strongly recommend that you and your family and your friends watch both films right before Passover every year. Make it part of your celebration, part of your ritual. Now, we're hoping to keep producing videos like this every week or two, and we also want to continue to do research on the ground in the Middle East, like you've seen, that's really exciting. We've got amazing leads to follow up on, uh, but we're entirely dependent upon viewers for support, and frankly, our cash reserves are gonna run out in the coming months if we don't get help. Um, so we appreciate your prayers and we appreciate any type of support that you can give us. If you want these videos to continue, please consider making a tax deductible donation of at least $1 for us using the links in the description box below. Thanks for watching and happy Passover. Well, there you have it, the archaeology of Passover. And of course, after Passover, there were 40 years of wandering that didn't really need to happen, but they did. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a new project uh, based on those wanderings. Is that right? Right. So uh, as we were talking about before, you can kind of trace using the Proto-Hebrew inscriptions that there was a Hebrew population that went from Egypt, then appeared in Northern Arabia, specifically around Split Rock, then specifically at where we think Mount Sinai is, and then ultimately ends up in Israel. And so we looked at that and said, well, I think there's a methodology here. What if we took some other data points uh, that people have used as evidence to show evidence of the Exodus in the Arabian Peninsula and we put them all together? So what if we put together the old uh, Semitic place names of different areas? What if we also traced where the sandals are, the sandal inscriptions of the footprint? And what if we also traced where other Proto-Hebrew Thermutic inscriptions are? and saw if they all line up. And also looking at other man-made archeological structures made by a nomadic population that has yet to be identified. And let's just see if all these things sync up. And so far, it's looking like it does. And so if we were able to do that, what that means is that you could trace the 40 years of wandering. Wow. going around the Arabian Peninsula if we're able to get the funding in order to do this. Yeah, and it is it is something where, you know, we had all these different previous researchers like the Caldwells, Leonard Moeller, uh, Miles Jones, and then also there's an Israeli researcher named Goel Rahimi who's looked into this as well. And we've connected with Goel. Mm -hmm. He's an awesome guy. Yeah. So they all have these individual data points. Now, people like the Caldwells did start to kind of combine some different data points, you know, and, and when they were working with Dr. Moeller and things like that, like they were looking at, well, where are these Semitic places? Place names compared to where these uh, these inscriptions are. Is there a way to combine it? So they started to do that. But Ryan one day is like, well, what if we combine everything? What if we combine all the available data that we know and we see what happens? And so we've started to do that. And the preliminary findings so far, it's a work in progress, but the preliminary findings are very exciting and there's a lot more to do with it. So now speaking of findings, do you, do you have a, like, a map that you've plotted these things on or yeah. uh, that people well, can see? A preliminary one, yes. Oh, and really? we're going to be posting more research at doubtingthomasresearch.com. Okay. That's the, uh, for our charity, the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation. Foundation. Okay, very good. And so everything you have there, is there articles on there about this? There's our, yeah, articles about all the different sites in Arabia, the history of the Sinai and Arabia theory and everything. And yeah, this one is going to be, it's not up on the website yet, but we'll show, we can show a graphic of it so far. Um, it's a work in progress, but it's exciting. All right, cool. We're going to come back and talk more about this. Okay, so just hang tight. You hang tight too. I hope you're ex as excited about this as I am. This is really neat stuff. So thank you for making this possible. Thanks for bringing uh, Ryan and Logan here. I'm thanking you because you made it possible. Some Someone else in the past made it possible for you to see this through funding. That's what we need to keep Shabbat Night Live going. So if you'd like others to see this into the future and give them an opportunity to go to Mount Sinai and see it for themselves, please donate to arudeawakening.tv slash give. And we're going to give you a couple minutes to do that. We'll be right back. Thank you. So some experts have looked at the geography of this area, and they said there are a lot of signs of what may be an underground aquifer, uh, where the water comes in from the sea, and it's not visible because it's under, under the ground. 
But then when there's seismic activity, just like the Bible describes happening at the area of the split rock, it then basically explodes out of the ground like, like a water version of a volcano. And it's called an artesian well. Uh, so we don't know for a fact yet whether there's an artesian well underneath where Split Rock is, uh, but some people have looked at the geography of the area and said there are a lot of signs of such an underground aquifer that would enable water to just really truly pour forth just like the Bible describes. Well, there you go. There's a little piece of what you could see at MountSinaiTours.com. That's Ryan. Ryan, you're right in front of the split rock. And uh, something, while that was going on, uh, Logan mentioned that the, where the water came down, as you were describing in the video, uh, Logan, you said there's, there's, there's like a trench, an obvious trench there, right? Oh, yeah. I, I walked through. I got video walking through it. So I'm walking through this area. I was really, one of the things I really wanted to do while we were there was make sure that I got really good pictures and video of the smooth rocks. And there's this one area where it is. It's like a trench. Like I was up, up to my head and I'm walking through it and it's nothing but the smooth rock. It's the smooth rock wow. and then you can walk up and out of it and you can see the smooth rock going up the hill all the way up to huh. where the split rock is. So how wide is this this uh, trench? Oh, it was, I mean, it was wide enough that I, th I think two people could almost walk side yeah. by side wow. through it. Yeah. So this means that, so now if we think about how rivers are formed and how fast moving water is formed, I mean, if it's a ton of water all at once, it's going to be very deep narrow and straight, yep. right? So this follows the narrative of the Bible that says that the water gushed out of the rock and came racing down that hill. And at the bottom, you guys have described previously that there's you know kind of a lake area where it all kind of collected. And there's no evidence of people being there because, well, they'd be underwater, right? Their right. encampment was in the next valley over. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Wow, that is totally incredible. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, you think about all those old paintings uh, that people would make of this miracle, and it's usually like Moses with a, a stick standing over a typical small <laughs> rock, and but no one ever seems to ask the question. Well, if there were millions of people, how is that? How is that going to do it? How's mm -hmm. one small rock going to have a little bit of water come out of it into a tiny stream? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but this makes sense. Right, yeah, especially, yeah, well, like you said, the rock being that huge and that kind of split, that yeah. it had to be some kind of massive force yeah. of yeah. water coming up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good night. <laughs> and the other reason that uh, we showed that particular video is because of the backlash that we... Oh, that tell we, us, yeah, this is yeah. about the Iranians again, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit of the, a little bit of everybody. Some Saudis <laughs> that were angry at us uh, of the more Wahhabist type, the more pure Islamic pur Puritans, basically. Um, but, you know, we have been talking about how the Iranian regime was upset at us uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood was upset at us and it all fits in in their minds into this apocalyptic end times prophecy. Um, and so we have to actually fight that ideologically because we are in an ideological conflict with the forces of radical Islam um, and all of its different strains. Uh, so we chose to respond to the Iranian regime, the Houthis in Yemen, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the others who are coming at us for this. Uh, and so I decided to provide you guys with the video so that people could see and also see the footage of these extremist media stations actually talking about this theory. All right, do we have that? Yeah, you have it. All right, well, let's take a look. Hi everyone, this is Ryan Morrow, the producer of Finding the Mountain of Moses, the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. And I'm making this video for two reasons. First, we've just surpassed 1.3 million views on YouTube. And that number doesn't even include places that copied the video or how many people heard about it through the media coverage that we've gotten from around the world. So it's really incredible what's going on and we're really excited about the ongoing success of the film and our ongoing research. The second reason I want to make this video is to talk to you about the reactions we're getting from propaganda outlets linked to the Iranian regime, the Houthi rebels, the Muslim Brotherhood, and other extremists. And so there are two reactions that we're getting. Some say, yes, the real Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. The film is true, but it's part of a Jewish plot to seize Mount Sinai and conquer Saudi Arabia. The other reaction we're getting from extremists is to say, no, the film isn't true at all. And it's also part of a Jewish plot to conquer Saudi Arabia. Right now, there's an Iran-linked organization called the Zahra Center in France that's being investigated for terrorism. 
And they have a video series out claiming that Saudi Arabia's NEOM project is part of a plot between the Saudis, the Americans, and the Israelis to control Mount Sinai and pave the way for the Dajjal, the Islamic version of the Antichrist. So they view this as the, as the fulfillment of end times apocalyptic prophecy. So let me be clear. We thank the Saudis for preserving the evidence this long. If Western businesses controlled the area, we would have ruined it. We believe this territory belongs to Saudi Arabia and we would oppose any effort to conquer the area. Yes, we're concerned about the sites being harmed because there is a history of even Islamic archeological sites being damaged. And we're concerned that construction for the NEOM project may unintentionally destroy evidence that is yet to be found. But none of us involved in this research are advocating taking it from Saudi Arabia. It doesn't even make any sense. We feel this is a special area and we want everyone to come see it. So why would we want a war or an invasion that would destroy the evidence and scenery that we want to preserve? It doesn't make any sense. We have a page on our website with the many historical sources who have suggested that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia for centuries, and none of them have called for seizing the territory. In fact, Ron Wyatt, the Christian researcher who brought attention to the mountain in the early 1980s, when he was arrested, he wrote a letter to the Saudi government that reads, My research also proves that no one except your royal majesties have divine claim to the holy mountain. This is proven by the Torah, the Quran, and secular history. He then quotes from Deuteronomy 2, 4 through 5, and command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a foot breath. So, all of those who have been involved in promoting the theory that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia have been saying the exact opposite of what the Iranian regime, the Muslim Brotherhood, and other extremists claim. The only piece of evidence that the extremists can point to is this book by an author who is against the religion of Islam. Now, I don't agree with this book, but even this book clearly says it, quote, does not call for the West to invade Saudi Arabia. The other thing that the extremists are pointing to are the inscriptions that are said to be proto-Hebrew with a footprint to show that they were there. Those inscriptions don't mean that people can come back thousands of years later and say that they own the land and take it by force or anything like that. So these extremist conspiracy theorists are lying. But why? The fact that we have their attention is actually a good thing. It means that they're afraid. They're afraid of how these discoveries can benefit the people of Saudi Arabia and improve the prospects for peace. The enemies of Saudi Arabia and the West understand that the Saudis could make billions of dollars from tourism revenue and that people of all faiths could come together here peacefully and that friendly interaction will debunk their hateful propaganda. These extremists who support terrorists and want conflict do not want anything that is good for peace in the region. Their negative reaction means that the good guys are winning. So we're going to continue to monitor the situation and we'll continue to respond to this extremist propaganda. To get our updates, subscribe to our YouTube channel below and go to SinaiInArabia.com and sign up for our newsletter as well. Amazing things are happening and we can't wait to be in touch with you about it. Thanks for watching. Okay, Ryan, okay, some good points made there. And you even had a quote from uh, Ron Wyatt, who, who largely, I mean, Michael, a lot of what Michael preaches today uh, is a lot of it was founded by, you know, Ron Wyatt, a lot of his original discoveries. And, uh, you know, his wife, uh, Mary Nell Wyatt Lee, uh, she still invites folks to her home yeah. to see this stuff yeah. in her basement. I've actually been there. I'm assuming you guys have too. No. No, oh my I, gosh. I've been there. Really? Really? I, oh, actually, I actually met Michael Rood at their house. Did at, you? Yeah. yeah. yeah you can time, actually yeah. hold like a piece of Noah's Ark in your hand and all these amazing yeah. things. And all these crazy things that she really shouldn't have in her house. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, just some, some friends uh, over in Egypt that uh, provide her with some stuff. And mm -hmm. it's really amazing things you won't see anywhere else. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff to see. So yeah, very good. So now has, has there been any rebuttal to your rebuttal? No, <laughs> 
just more uh, shouting with the same lines. Uh, so one of the things that you learn in these types of YouTube video media battles is that you never make progress in the conversation. Uh, so you make the rebuttal to their accusations, and then the conversation just kind of stays put right there. Uh, uh, but this has been getting a lot of media coverage over the years, uh, even though the film was released in 2017, I think. 18. 18. 18 yep. um, and so you remember that better than I did. I don't know why. <laughs> and, uh, but every once in a while, you'll get a major newspaper that's referencing it, and then we go through the same cycle where there'll be the haters in the comments, the emails, the death threats, <laughs> and all of that uh, over what we're doing. And then we just point them to that video. Um, but I think most of them don't take the time to watch it. I got you. Now, so. the first video we showed of you standing in front of the Split Rock, uh, that got a lot of attention on Twitter, I understand, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was particularly from Wahhabist, uh, Saudi Wahhabist. So there's these different strains in radical Islam. So we'll mention the Iranian regime, which will be basically at war with the Wahhabist strain in Saudi Arabia and other places. Uh, but they all basically agreed, uh, all the bad guys agreed on something, which is that we are, pri we are part of the Antichrist plot. Mm -hmm. um, but don't worry, when you go on our tours, you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there a Wahhabist comment recently who said something about the split rock must be removed? Yes, that's yeah. right. Must be removed. Yeah. <laughs> and the, re the reasoning behind that is because according to the real hardline uh, Islamic beliefs there in Saudi Arabia, any site, no matter how important it is, if they feel it's becoming venerated above God, then you have to destroy it. That's okay. actually why a lot of this is preserved, because you, you see in Finding the Mountain of Moses, I interview a former jihadist who said, yeah, we know about that place in Saudi Arabia where Mount Sinai is, uh, but the reason it's fenced off, in part, is to preserve it. If too many people know about it, and they go there, and people start you know, saying, oh, I, I prayed on this sand, so I'm selling it, and you know, people start defiling the site, then you've got to destroy the site. Right. So in the biggest irony, it's actually the Islamic Puritanism, the radical Islam of Saudi Arabia that ended up preserving Mount Sinai wow. and all of this archaeological evidence that you're only seeing now. So to prevent it from becoming a Western idol. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, so then they hide it from people and don't know. let people go there. And so now that people are going to Split Rock, you get some of these comments from extremists that are saying, all right, well, now we've got to destroy that thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So there's now you have another story uh, from someone who is helping you get to some of these uh, sites, right? Yeah, so there, there's a local, now this has to do with the graveyard site, right? So some miles north of what we believe would be the main encampment where the Israelites stayed at Mount Sinai, there's this massive ancient graveyard. Um, and a lot of people believe this is where the golden calf worshippers were buried. That's something we've argued. That's mm. something the Caldwells have believed for, for a long time as well, and others that are researching this. So there is a Saudi who has lived there for a while, um, who was with us at this site, um, and he explained their local traditions behind it. And uh, he shared with us that they do believe that this is where the golden calf worshippers were buried. Mm. And he went into this whole explanation of of that tradition, where basically he said Musa was up on the mountain, right? And then he comes down. It's the same as the Bible story. Musa comes down, and he sees that his people have worshipped this golden cow, right? And he says, so then there was a battle that ensued. And the people that were for Musa and for his message killed the people that were worshipping the golden calf, and they buried them here at this site. Huh, interesting. And so we were there at that location. Now, uh, <laughs> we weren't allowed to you know, do any kind of real photography or, or video there that we were supposed to share anything like that because it's you know Muslim Muslim uh, laws and yeah. stuff like that um, but it was amazing to hear him say that and so Ryan pressed him a little bit right yeah and so you asked him well who told you this you know when did you first hear this is this something you I think specifically you said is when Saudis are growing up as children is this something that they are taught and he said oh yes he said just yes this is something that that we are taught and he was very adamant about it and then Ryan you pressed him a little bit more and be like okay well when did you first hear this and then he said oh you know my father and I were riding the camels and we came by this site yeah. and then he mm. he caught me <laughs> with my phone and told me to put the camera away yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, it was an amazing time but going there and seeing it, there are hundreds to thousands of uh, standing stones there, and oh yeah, it's it really it's a, ma it's a massive graveyard, yeah, yeah, like sure. a grave marker, like a grave markers, yeah. Okay. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Something it, big happened there. Mm. Yeah, involving a population that has yet to be identified. <laughs> That's the pattern that we keep coming across. And there have been people that have done satellite imagery work on that area. Um, and they haven't they said that it's like it looks like it was all dug at once. It doesn't look yeah. like it's a site that mm. was in continued use over like years, decades, centuries, millennia. It looks like all these graves were dug at one time. So it literally yeah. looks like a mass burial from what they can tell. Mm. Um, what would be really amazing if we could ever do this, I don't know if we could ever do this, but if we could ever do it, it'd be amazing if there was permission to actually excavate some of the graves there and see if you could take DNA remnants. This is something I talked with Dr. Glenn Fritz about. If you could take DNA fragments from the teeth, from the pulp of the teeth of the people there and see if you can identify the population hmm. because if it's Israelites or there's the mixed multitude as well, but if you can get enough of, enough sampling, you could you could in theory, trace the people or determine what ethnicity those people are, and that'd be a smoking gun for, Wouldn't it? for that. Yeah. And even just as a starter, as the Caldwells have done at the, uh, at the uh, Noah's Ark site uh, with the ground-penetrating radar. Oh, oh not the Caldwell, sorry, uh, the Lees. The Lees, oh, Lees. yeah, at the Noah's yeah. Ark site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where Absolutely. you can clearly, I don't know if you've seen that, mm -hmm. there's underground radar where you can clearly see a boat shape yeah, underground. Yeah. It yeah. is undeniable. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if that thing can pick up wood or petrified wood, it can pick up bones. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, could go out, you, could, you could go out there with ground-penetrating radar or even we have a, a new uh, device that a donor helped us get, the, yeah. uh, the, this metal detector that's also a void detector. So you can detect voids beneath the ground. If there are precious metals there, you could pick those up. Now, we don't know if they'd be buried with grave goods, but mm. you know that's another thing. You find like maybe gold, and then you can trace where that gold came from. Oh, it came from Egypt. Well, who are these people here? Mm, that kind of interesting. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Really, none of the ideas that you guys mentioned are impossible to do. I think they're actually yeah. very feasible. I think there's enough interest in Saudi Arabia now to explore these sites, even if they don't think it's connected to the Exodus, that you could get permission and you could team up with Saudi scholars in order to do it. Uh, we just keep running into the issue of, of funding. I mean, it is, sure. for biblical archaeology, it really is hard to fundraise for. Uh, but in theory, this is all stuff that we could do. Yeah. Mm. And didn't you, weren't you a part of the first Saudi archaeological conference? I don't know if I'd say I was a part of it. Okay, I was well, invited to invited, it. Yeah. yeah, I was invited to it. Um, and it was a really interesting experience because there were some people who like kind of closely followed me um, and were asking some pointed questions about whether I was going to visit the special mountain, which mm. then they said is Jebel Luz, Jebel Laws. Um, it, it was an interesting experience, but they made such a big deal of it. They had guys with dancing, they're dancing with swords and all sorts of lights. It was like a club outside, all celebrating the opening of international archaeology in Saudi wow. Arabia. Yeah, interesting. Amazing. Well, you know, I do find it, like we mentioned previously, it, it is interesting how Yehovah works, as that he will use those who are against him to per, to you know, protect those things which uh, are still in the desert today, untouched. And it sounds like the people are very protective of it, which is great. Good. I mean, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that, that is a beautiful thing. And I can't help but think that all this all lines up with Revelation. And there is something to be said here. There's something coming together. There's something that, going on. Yeah, yeah, maybe we just don't understand yet. Yeah, so, yeah. Guys, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, we've talked about your, your tours. First of all, it's, what is the website again? MountSinaiTours.com. Okay. And when is your next tour? In October. In October of 2022. Yeah. Okay, very yep. good. And how many people do you take? As many as we possibly can. Yeah. Okay, great. So there's no limit. It can be... We'll figure it out. You'll you know, figure it out. Okay. No matter what it is, we'll figure it out. All right, very good. So MountSinaiTours.com is where we go to talk about that. Next week, we're going to talk about Afghanistan. Completely different topic that we need to talk about. Uh, different things you're doing over there. Has nothing to do with uh, tours, but nonetheless, some very uh, interesting information about what's going on there. All right, so we'll talk then, and uh, we'll see you then. Until then, Shavua Tov, and uh, we'll see you next time on Shabbat Night Live.